If you're traveling, find one professional event to go to. Introduce yourself. Just get yourself out there and not be afraid to do so. I think a lot of people feel like they're sucking up or I think particularly people of color have this misguided notion that networking is really fake and about clout chasing, but it's not. Networking at its core is about building connections which help to grow you. Welcome to a new season of Start Right Here, where I talk to BIPOC beauty pros about breaking into beauty, standing out, and defining success for themselves. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I'm OG beauty director turned consultant, but I'm also a dot connector who links others with people, ideas, and information. And I do this show because I am an advocate for creating an equitable, inclusive beauty industry. And this show is one way to bring you the information if you want to take a seat at the table or build one of your own. Let's get started with the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another bonus episode of Start Right Here, where we explore the practical tips related to breaking into beauty moving up, pivoting, and defining success for yourself. Today, we're going to talk about recruiting. What does a recruiter do? How do you get the best experience working with a recruiter? And why is it important to work with a recruiter, especially when you're trying to break into beauty? I'm very pleased today to welcome Brianna Blackwood-Mallory of Conigan Consulting and Recruiting. We're going to talk about her journey a little bit, why she got into recruiting, why she works particularly in the beauty industry, and how she could help those of us who are looking land jobs. Welcome, Brianna. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Tell us a little bit about your background and your career journey thus far. I think that like many people, when I graduated, I really didn't know what to do. I had a degree in Chinese language and literature. I knew I didn't want to go back to China, not because I don't love China, but I just didn't feel like there was a place for me there to feel inclusive, to feel belonged. And I really wanted to do work that was impacting society because social impact has also always been at the core of what I like and what I feel I've been called to do. So I kind of figured it out. I moved to Germany. I know that sounds really random. I had a few friends that were living there at the time. The cost of living, I don't want to date myself, but all those years back was a lot less. (laughs) And so it was a great place for someone just starting out to start and begin their career. What I ended up falling into was digital marketing. And I did digital marketing for independent artists who were kind of looking for management and gallery representation. I worked with small businesses, mostly like food and beverage and cafes like that. And I also got to work a lot in technology and IT. And I thought for a while that was going to be great for me. Like I had found my place. But as I got more into it, I realized that I was selling a lot of things that people don't really need. People don't really want (laughs) spending a lot of brain power to try to convince them that this was the right thing to do. 
when there are so many ways that we can contribute to our society that might not align with the traditional capitalist line of thinking. So I ended up doing recruitment marketing kind of by happenstance. I was working as a freelancer. My company was formerly called Koenigan Media, and now it's Koenigan Consulting and Recruiting. But I got referred because I do great work and helped someone to kind of do job ads and just kind of worked my way up in there. What I liked about recruiting marketing is that, again, it's not a product. It's not a service. It's something that we all need. Well, most of us need. I guess the one percenters don't need it. (laughs) Even then, though, sometimes they get recruited as well. Yeah. And I just felt like, especially working as a freelancer and being like a young woman abroad, not having access to so many mentors at first, work really impacts your life. If you have a good job, you know, you only spend 40 hours a week. I know I've spent 60, 70 hours a week. When I'm doing well at work, that affects my mental health. If I'm not doing well at work, that's going to affect my mental health. And I see that as something that's shared with everyone. You said the Chinese literature. Were you living in China at the time? Like, say more about that, because you just glossed over it and it said, I don't want to go back to China. But I was like, were you living there? (laughs) (laughs) So I had done a study abroad program with Qingdao University and Vassar. I loved it. But I think we've all seen the news articles of what it's like to be Black in Asia. Brianna was really hot. My name is Brianna. People kept getting us confused. I don't know why. I was flattered. I mean, I love to look like Rihanna. (laughs) But I didn't feel like where China is and was, was a good space for a young Black woman. Maybe someone who is more sure of themselves, knows who they are, can go there and do great work. And I do see Black women, Black men who are there and they're doing great work. But for me, that was a bit too much. Understood. So you went from recruitment marketing to actually recruiting. Talk to us about how that happened. Honestly, I wanted to get my hands more dirty. Recruitment marketing to recruiting is marketing to sales. At a certain point, all marketers, I feel like even though you love the nitty gritty, you want to get in there. You want to talk to people. You don't want to just start conversations. You want to be in them. You want to propel them forward. And so that was my motivation. I was really blessed to get recruited for an RPO that Ransad SourceRight was doing with Google. I got to recruit across Google's products and services, across different departments within the product services. And because Google is such a mega company, each department honestly is a company unto itself. I got to meet a lot of people who I still speak with today, who inspired me and continue to inspire me. And I think that that set me on my path to be a recruiter. Wonderful. So technology has been going through a little bit of a, I guess, right-sizing, some would say, because it has been an explosive growth over the last couple decades. So how did you get interested after you left Google in beauty? I started working for a creative agency that does creative staffing. At first, we had a lot of work in tech. I do believe that's why they recruited me. But where I found 
I was enjoying myself the most was working with our beauty partners, most notably Estee Lauder, Supergoop, Milk Makeup. There's a bunch of others. I found that the candidates that I were working with were really passionate in a way that I really didn't see with some of our other clientele. And I just felt as an individual, the beauty, fashion, entertainment, they all have this capacity to inform and reflect what we are all thinking and feeling. And I just didn't see a lot of PEI work being done in sign of the concerted effort that you see in maybe higher education or in tech. And there certainly are big retailers, Sephora, Ulta, Walmart, Target, especially Target, who are definitely making strides. But within the individual super brands, I feel like the work so far has been limited. And I don't want it to go the way of tech. They have DEI programs that are very intense, very forward thinking. But I still think that they've missed the mark on quite a few things. Yeah, we're going to get into that a little bit. But before that, you call yourself a compassionate recruiter. What makes you a compassionate recruiter? I think compassionate recruiting to me is not treating it just as a job or just treating your interactions as transactional. It's really about focusing on relationships, not just relationships with your clients and your companies, but relationships with candidates. Candidates can quickly become clients. Clients can quickly become candidates. And depending on how you treat them, that's my bread and butter. That is my service. I can't provide (laughs) good candidates without having good candidates. I think another part of compassionate recruiting is really understanding long-term goals. So long-term goals for candidates would be, I might meet someone three, four years out of college. They want to become the general manager of a beauty brand and helping them to not only present them with the correct roles according to the skills that they have, but roles that will lead up to where they want to go. On the other side of the companies, compassionate recruiting is really understanding their core missions, their core values, what they stand for, and finding people that are in alignment to push that forward. Because a company is only as good as its employees. And I can't call myself a good recruiter if I'm not finding employees that are worthwhile in the long term, worth the investment. Right. What's interesting in what you said is, I don't know a lot of recruiters though, but I've never heard someone say, I'm looking at the core mission, core values to find the correct candidates. Do you think that's unique? Because a lot of times people are looking at it as a commodity. Let me check the box off. Am I wrong? I think a lot of recruiters are like that. But being in the recruiting field, I'm meeting more and more recruiters that are like-minded I do think that's the future of recruiting because as all these tools come in, AI comes in, companies get bigger, our fees get bigger. Companies are going to need a better value from recruiters and being able to do that and being able to show that you can and have done that is really what's going to separate you from the rest. You talked about what type of beauty companies you work with? What kind of roles have you recruited for? Everything. Entry-level graphic designer, UI motion designer, product designer, product manager, 
e-commerce manager, e-commerce director, head of product, no general managers yet, but I'm working on it. Senior brand management, social media. I really love creative roles. Those are what interests me because my background's in marketing. And those are the people I feel like I can identify like by a gut feeling. But I also do tech roles, data analysts, software engineers, backend engineers, anything. I'll do anything. <laughs> we talked a little bit about this in the pre-interview. On the show, I have interviewed guests who have tried to transition into beauty, who haven't had like a traditional career path and found it difficult. Is that changing in any way or is that the case still? Unfortunately, that is the case. Even with some of the smaller brands or the newer brands, a lot of them are ex-L'Oreal, ex-Procter & Gamble, ex-Unilever. So they're bringing some of the culture and the habits from their previous experiences into their new experiences, which is helping them to grow, but also limiting them. And the way that I present my candidates, I present them really holistically. And I've had some successes getting some non-traditional candidates in front. But I think that's something that the beauty industry needs to discuss a little bit more and break away from. It's really hard to claim that you're about DEIB and, you know, be pulling from the same place that everyone else is pulling from that is not diverse. So it is not your imagination if you find it challenging to pivot into beauty and you have encountered some blocks. So it is a matter of, from Brianna's point of view, re-educating companies about expanding the candidate pool, and then on your part as a candidate, selling your transferable skills in a way that gets their attention. I don't know what that is, but you have to be willing to try. If beauty is your destination, you're going to have to be willing to try some inventive ways to get attention. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about finding diverse talent. So let's layer in that. If we're starting with a small pool and there are only a small pool of diverse people in the beauty industry right now, how effective can DEI be in this space? That's a really good question. I think that certain leaders that I've reached out to and I'm in conversation with that are definitely open to changing. I think at the end of the day, it's being able to prove the value that you can bring understanding where the company is headed. You know, a few years ago, a lot of beauty companies were really enamored with the D2C e-commerce type of model. So being able to align your past work with that and show them what they don't have. Really asking questions as a candidate about the team that you would be walking into, trying to find out their strengths, their weaknesses, and being able to fill in the gaps. I think it's going to take more than one time. It might take more than 10 times. But if that's what you really want, I believe in manifestation. You set your intentions. If you do the work, you will get it. Right. That's really interesting. And I think that people that are in tech may have a better road in because technology is becoming increasingly important in servicing consumers. 
So having a technology background and maybe without beauty, you may have a somewhat better chance if your role is totally technical and you can ramp up on the beauty part later. But I think also it is for companies to realize that it's important to diversify their suppliers so that there are more use helping to bring in candidates than maybe a recruiting partner that has no diversity within it. Yeah. So they have in-house recruiters, but how do they work with outside recruiters? There's a bunch of different ways. Sometimes the way in is through the actual hiring manager. I would reach out to the social media director and be like, hey, I have this and this candidate. I noticed that you have this and this role, or I noticed somebody has left. I am a LinkedIn creeper. I'm always looking. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So that's one way in. Another way in is reaching out directly to the CEO, the C-suite, the head of people, and just selling them on your services. I like to do this a lot when annual reports or investor reports are put out. That's when the momentum for DEI and related initiatives is highest. And I find that I get better inroads in then. Another, I guess, tactic I've been using is not going after such big brands, going after mid-sized or smaller brands whose consumer base is diverse. You can think about this in hair care, 4C hair care or textured hair care brands. Those people are already inherently understanding of the need for DEI. And so it's less of a sell. Same thing with maybe makeup brands or skincare brands that are focused on melanated skin or skin with psoriasis. There's so many different venues. So that's kind of what I do. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the interview process. Because these days, you can have a really long interview process, and it seems almost endless. Yeah. So how does one prepare to work with a recruiter? I think the first thing for us is to work on your LinkedIn profile. Make sure that it has that bar filled up that says it's 100% complete. I think the second thing to think about and to really reflect on is the type of jobs that you're looking for and the keywords that are associated with those jobs. A lot of recruiters are, for better or worse, very reliant on LinkedIn Recruiter. And the way that LinkedIn Recruiter works is by finding keywords. So if you don't have words that I think of are reflective of the role that I'm looking for, I might not find you. Not all recruiters are going to try every different type of Boolean string they can think of to find them. They'll do the one, two, maybe three strings. They'll have their list of 25. They'll reach out, maybe get five people to speak to and keep it moving. So I think that's the first thing to do. I think the second thing to do is when you're applying for jobs, to reach out to whoever has posted them or whoever would be your boss, your supervisor. I think having connections already with the companies that you're looking for can only help you and will also help the right recruiters find you because we also are connected to those people. And that kind of lends an air of, hey, I got to look at this. And I think that the third thing to do is to have a really good idea of what your minimum salary requirements are 
your ideal salary requirements are, your work location, whether or not you truly are amenable to hybrid work. There's not as many remote jobs as there used to be, but if you don't want to work hybrid, don't put yourself in that situation. You're making yourself look bad, not only to the company that you end up going on with, but you're making the recruiter feel like, hey, maybe that person's not as reliable. Maybe I shouldn't keep reaching out to them. Just really understanding what you're looking for. I think I said that before, but holistically, what do you need in terms of work-life balance? What type of workplace will you feel most comfortable in? Are you comfortable being maybe the only BIPOC or queer or differently abled person? Because that's going to change your work experience. And that's going to kind of change how people look at you. Ooh, that's very, very true. I love the idea of keywords in LinkedIn. And I'm sure I'm going to go back and fix my LinkedIn. I'll help you. <laughs> <laughs> the keyword part. And then realizing that if you're not open to hybrid, that if a recruiter has brought you to the table, you could make them look bad because you told them you were. When we're talking about creating relationships, you may need that recruiter again. So be as honest as you can be in that situation. So you're both in the best space. The part about the salary is a little bit of a challenge because we don't always know what the salaries are. Some things are posted and some are not. And now people are skirting around like New York, it's quote unquote the law, but they skirt around it by going like, between seventy five and three hundred fifty thousand. Huge ranges. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> so trying to find that information, like doing as much digging as possible is helpful, but then it's not always feasible. Well, I always advise my candidates to really think about how you're living. What is the minimum that you need to maintain your life? Because no matter what there's the right job for you out there and you shouldn't be taking less than what you need. That's putting undue stress on you. Ultimately, you're not going to do a good job, you know, because six months into the struggle, you're going to be like, I could be doing better. My friend from college, she's making three times as much as me. You're going to be unhappy and you're not going to be putting your best foot forward first. And second, you're not going to be taking everything that you need from that job so that you can move to the next one. So now let's talk about the process. Take us through what a process could look like. I mean, there's not one process, but let's take about like there's a shorter term and then there are very long processes. Let's do mid. <laughs> let's do something that's like in the medium. How many interviews should you expect? I think four. I usually advise my clients three because I've already done at least one screening interview. I might call back after I've found a role to clarify some things that we talked about or some things I saw on your resume or portfolio. But I think four is really good. The first one should be pretty generic with HR or a team member. The second one should be with your direct supervisor. The third one and fourth one should be with senior leadership really three to four. I always try to consolidate and do panel interviews whenever possible. And this is me talking as a company. We need to really recognize that we're asking people to spend time. Sometimes we're asking for them 
to do additional projects, proof tests, I like to call. And that's money that most people aren't paying for. I've never heard of anyone being paid to interview. And your employer brand is really important as a company, even for the people that you don't hire, because everybody knows someone. And if you're looking for someone in e-commerce, for example, that person definitely knows at least 10 to other 15 other people who are also in e-commerce. And you're spoiling your already small pool by not treating your candidates well. So that's what I usually advise. Okay, so four interviews. What is the trick to acing a panel interview? I always tell my candidates to look at whoever they're interviewing LinkedIn profile, to look on the company page. Sometimes company pages will be like, here's our team. Look to see where they went to school. Maybe you guys are from the same hometown. Really try to make that genuine personal connection. If you notice the company is doing projects that would have been led and driven by this leader, have something to say about that project, how it impacted you, where you saw it. Some people like to say this is kissing up. I like to say that it's showing that you are truly interested in what they do. And I think in the beauty industry and fashion industries especially, this is important. I think that there's an expectation that everyone who's working in the brand is a brand ambassador. I've never interviewed anyone in the beauty industry who isn't still a brand ambassador for the job they worked three years ago or three jobs ago. It's very important. It shows that you understand the culture and can integrate into the culture. So that's the first thing. The second thing, understanding mission and core values and incorporating that into as many responses that you have as possible. Staying positive. I think that's something to note because we're in layoff year, layoff era. A lot of us are really bitter about that for good reason. But this is not the time to bring that up. Skirt past it as best as you can. Focus on the positives and keep it moving. Nobody wants to hire a Debbie Downer. I think those are the best things that you can do. Because we're in layoff era. How do we address gaps in employment? Do we need to address them in any specific way, tell the story or whatever, take us to Debbie Downer land? I think we should address them. It's really important to be transparent. Most candidates have an expectation that companies are going to be transparent with them. And so you owe them that respect to do that. I think it depends on what the career gap is. If you're laid off, just say that. Keep it short, sweet, simple. Maybe mention that it didn't have any bearing on your performance, if that's true. Another reason I see career gaps is people have families or people are taking care of their elderly parents, sicknesses. Be careful with sicknesses. It's illegal for a company to not hire you for that, but we're all human. It's incredibly difficult to prove. I just wouldn't bring that up. I would say I just needed to take some time off and I spent it doing X, Y, Z. Hopefully it wasn't just Netflixing. Hopefully you did some volunteer work. You worked with your church or your synagogue or whatever, you know, you practice. You spent time with your kids. I think everybody can relate to that, but definitely keep it positive. Keep it brief. Usually interviewers won't ask too many questions 
because a lot of those questions put them into slippery legal territory. (laughs) Very slippery slope. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Start Right Here podcast and leave a review. Also, you can sign up for our mailing list at theberoundtable.com so you will be on the know about all the good things coming. Talk about gaps and when you're working with a recruiter, is it less likely you'll be ghosted by a company? They ghost us. (laughs) (laughs) I won't give the company, but I was working with one candidate. We were getting momentum. They did three interviews. We were supposed to be scheduling the fourth interview. The company didn't tell me that they had an internal that they were eyeing. They just said they loved my candidate, wanted to see her again. I was on the phone, on LinkedIn. I was in full stalker mode trying to get some sort of feedback from this company. And it really wasn't until the end when they hired their internal that they told me, hey, there was an internal and we ended up going with them, but we would love to see your candidate again. There's something opening up a few months from now. But by that time, they had kind of soured the candidate's disposition and they were no longer willing to go forward with any role for that company, much less start the process over Because we don't talk about the mental and emotional exhaustion that comes with these interviews. The hype yourself up, all the things you're doing, like tap dancing, like pick me, pick me, pick me. Yeah. And then the waiting period that goes in between. And as much as you'd like to say what's for me is for me, there's still some mental, even some physical exhaustion that happens as a result of going through these processes? Yeah. I mean, I try to, I don't try. I am the biggest advocate for all of my candidates. And I try to advocate all my clients to appropriate candidates. I think that's the difference. But some people just aren't that nice. I don't know what to say. (laughs) No, no, it's real. So it's just a matter of expectation because sometimes... Applying for jobs is like sport, like especially on LinkedIn or someplace like that. Oh, every time. It's like the Hunger Games. You're just throwing your stuff in the ring and seeing what happens. Even if you're ideal for it and you apply, you just never know who's going to get back to you, what's going to happen. And when somebody does get back to you, it's more of a surprise when they do to let you know what happened than being ghosted. I mean, there's an expectation of being ghosted by HR more these days than there used to be. And- on there and they're overwhelmed. So it's not necessarily personal. I've been in the field a little bit now. It's two clicks to reject someone. Don't give them any leniency. They need to stop. They're not representing their company well, especially as HR professionals. And this trend is abominable. Like the way that the ATS systems are set up, it's so easy to send it out. Maybe not respond if someone's like, why very quickly, but no, it's not appropriate. It's not excusable. It's really interesting. So when I get good ones, like I got a really nice one and it was automated, but it was like nice Zappos. It was really cute. I was like, oh, I like them. Exactly. Because they sent it and it was conversational, but for the most part, they're random and there is the ghosting and it's fine. Well, it's not fine is what you're saying. (laughs) 
It's not fine. It's not excusable, but it is a norm. It's a norm, definitely. So do people approach you as a recruiter or do you mostly approach other people? It's a mixture. I get a lot of referrals because of the way that I work with my candidates. A lot of people know their friend is looking for work. They send them my way. I use LinkedIn Recruiter. I live on LinkedIn. I go through posts. Sometimes I'll look at other recruiters' posts. Like I'll look at Google's <laughs> or Microsoft. Someplace where I know that they're going to get an influx of applications way larger than what they can handle in a day, two, or three. A lot of candidates will put all of their information and I'll reach out that way. But I think it's a mixture of the two. And that's a testament to how I recruit. I know for a lot of recruiters, they are constantly searching for the next person, for their next client. And I'm lucky enough to not have to do that. That's great. Let's say you've placed somebody in a position Years later, do they circle back and say, Brianna, I'm looking, keep an eye oh, out. Yeah. What you're trying to do, and you mentioned this early, is kind of creating long-term relationships, both with companies that you're working with and the clients. You don't want them to turn around six months later, but when they are ready to look, they should let you know. I get nervous when it's six months later. It has happened. <laughs> when I was in agency, and usually that's because the company was not being honest about what they want to do. I think that's something you find a lot with DEI. A lot of the DEI burnout cycle is from that. They make these grand promises. And then when it's time to put things into action, they water down the work or they postpone the work. And you're like, but when? It's already been this much. Sometimes those are difficult to spot. I think I've been around the block a few times. I know when they're going to do that but I still get surprised. Okay. So you tend to stay away from somebody who has a track record of doing that in terms of placing, because you do care about your candidate as much as you do the company that you're working with. I always will respond. Like I'll ask questions. Okay. Sometimes it's my husband got laid off. I can't live on the salary that I have now. There's some good reasons or tax bill came for my house and it was way more than I expected. And sometimes we're just brash or having problems with a manager or a supervisor. And we're like, I don't have to deal with this. I can leave. Definitely could have about two years ago. Right now, it's not so much of a candidate's marketplace. The companies have a lot more control and power over the job search right now. So I usually kind of advise people in that situation to figure it out, to find a way to get their point across or to move within the company instead of just moving completely out of the company. Because I'm not the only recruiter in the world. And I know plenty of recruiters, they see you work six months here, a year here, never longer than two, three years. They won't talk to you because they feel like you are a job hopper, a flight risk. But there are a lot of reasons for that. That's very true. So I like that advice to kind of hang tight, but I'm really interested in what you said about companies having more control. What do you think precipitated that change? Everyone's looking for a job and everyone is always looking for a job, but there are a lot of people who are very underemployed in terms of their salary. That's why I say when you look for your next job, 
be very clear about what is the minimum you need to live. Do the math, pull out the spreadsheet, whatever you need to do to kind of break it down to yourself to make sure that you're not in that case. Because jumping to a next job is not so easy. For entry-level jobs, you're used to getting bombarded by a ton of candidates. But now it's the same for mid-level, for executive level, just a ton of candidates. And usually when you see a ton of candidates for an executive level, 90% are not qualified. You know, they're just people who, I don't know, people just apply to everything without reading. But now there are tons of executives, qualified executives, 20 plus years of experience who are looking for a job and ready to take less than what they even made at their last job because unemployment's running out, that severance check has been gone and they need to figure something out. Yeah, it's real out here. When you get bombarded with a resume, how do you pick something that stands out? It really depends on the role. It depends on the company. You have to understand how this role fits into the team, the department, the company. And you're looking for a resume that suggests that it could fit. For me, I will screen a lot of people. Say I get 500, I might screen 100, whereas most recruiters will only screen 25. If I feel like there's any chance that you could have what I'm looking for, particularly since a lot of people are not professional resume writers, they know how to describe what they did, but not necessarily are highlighting everything that they need to highlight that they've done a bazillion times <laughs> in their resume um, because it's just not apparent to them. They do it every day, like that comes with the territory. And I think that understanding the role just generally. So when I say that, I've worked on a senior brand manager role for beauty company a bazillion times. I can kind of tell now when I'm looking at resumes, hey, that person probably has it, but I probably need to advise them to make some corrections. Or I don't just look at the resume. I'll look at the LinkedIn profile before I choose to send the, sorry, try again next time type of email. Because sometimes the LinkedIn will be a lot more dynamic than the resume. So I know that's not a concrete answer, but it just depends. I think it's helpful, though, because if you're working on trying to stand out in the sea, you now know that your LinkedIn is critically important and what you put on your resume, not that you've had the experience, but how you explain your experience. Yeah. And there's one more thing I'd like to add. I always talk to people that reach out to me, even if it's to tell them, I don't think you're a great fit. Understanding why they applied for that role can kind of help me contextualize their experience a lot more than their resume can. And that role will and has popped up a week, two weeks later, and they were the first in front. So definitely always reach out to whoever posted the job. I would say create a LinkedIn email message or an email that can be read in 45 seconds or less that really shows that you read the job description 
and relate it back to one or two examples of where you've done that before. That helps. I'm going out of my way to reach out to you. That's great advice. What does success look like for you, both for relationship with a company and with a candidate? Success looks like six months down the line, when the company has a new role, they remember how well I did the last time and they reach out to me and I'm the only one they gave it to. That is like a love song to recruiters. Success is also three months down the line, a month down the line, a week after they've accepted offer, when candidates tell me, thank you so much for the work that you've done. You helped me so much. And they refer me to their friends. It's not a number. It's a feeling. And that goes with your position and your belief that compassionate recruiting is the way to go for you. Final question. Can you offer some practical tips for building effective relationship with a recruiter? So I might not be ready right now, but I'm ready six months from now. How do I start to prepare myself and to get in your space so that you remember me? I would say answer all the emails, even if the email is to say, I'm not open right now, but I will be in six months. I know I put you in my calendar six months from now, reach out to this person. (laughs) (laughs) I would say, look through your LinkedIn messages. There's two inboxes. There's your normal inbox, and then there's an other inbox. Others are people who have sent you in mails who you might not necessarily be connected to. Go through those. And again, answer, hey, I'm ready or I'm not ready yet, but I'll be ready in this time. Connect with recruiters on LinkedIn. There's so many LinkedIn events going on where people are talking about what it's like to work at wherever they work certain workplace issues that might be going on. Interact with the attendee list, form relationships, get outside. You don't have to do everything digitally. There's so many meetup groups, especially in major cities, or if you're traveling, find one professional event to go to. Introduce yourself. Just get yourself out there and not be afraid to do so. I think a lot of people feel like they're sucking up, or I think particularly people of color have this misguided notion that networking is really fake and about clout chasing, but it's not. Networking at its core is about building connections, which help to grow you and to ensure that you have continuous growth. So not being afraid to do that. And then I think whenever I'm ready to look for a job, I start posting on LinkedIn. I start getting more buzz around me because I find that I'm able to learn more about the things that I like, but also start conversations with people I never would have been able to talk to before. Yeah, that's really good advice. All of that is great advice, even if you're not looking, just to be present and for opportunities to find you, even if you're not looking, because you are engaged in the LinkedIn space, in events, in creating a valuable network, not necessarily money-wise or clout-wise, but your network, you like them, they like you. Honestly, that's how a lot of people are getting jobs. It's not what you know, it's who you know. My mom used to love to tell me that. Absolutely. And I think also when you have a valuable network, you're looking for each other to win. You're not competing. You're not doing any of that other stuff. So it becomes a secret weapon in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
Brianna, this is really, really helpful. I know it's going to help a lot of people, especially those who are hoping to pivot. Do not give up. Just be inventive. People that are interested in beauty, whether they're starting out an entry level or mid-level, want to pivot. Brianna's given us some really, really sage advice. How can people get in touch with you? You can go on my website, konigancr.com. Also on LinkedIn. You know, I'm the LinkedIn girl. (laughs) And you can schedule an appointment with me or just send me an email if you're not ready to do something more formal. I'm always willing to talk to people and I'm always willing to help people work on their resumes. Even if I can't help you, I want to see people winning. That's why I got into this and that's why I continue to do this. Great. I can't thank you enough for all your great tips, for your sage advice and insight into recruiting and what success looks like. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. That's our show for today. Follow Start Right Here on Instagram at start underscore right underscore here underscore podcast. And check out the Last Word newsletter for my latest musings on beauty and inclusion.